Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our summer series uh, together where we're studying what the Bible calls lament. This is our third week in the series, and, and for the first couple of weeks, Matt McCullough and Matt Givens have been uh, helping us to see that the, the Bible describes lament and gives us a picture of um, something that is a very powerful tool for us. Lament is... Uh, what Matt and Matt have been saying is a deep and powerful expression of pain or grief or sadness. Uh, but Christian lament is directed towards God. Whenever we stand in this position of seeing God's promises, seeing what he has told us he's doing, but then looking at the world around us and seeing so many things that seem to contradict those promises and what he says he's doing, that we stand there and look towards God and ask, what is going on? This week, I've, I've thought about what a, what a strange position we find ourselves in as we go through a series like this. I don't know if you felt this way. I've heard a couple of people say some things sort of in the line of um, hmm, lament all, all summer, huh? Okay, all right. Uh, and, and lament is a part of the Bible that I think a lot of us probably don't spend a whole lot of time studying closely. I know Matt, I think, asked for people to raise their hands uh, if they'd been through a preaching series on lament before, and there weren't too many hands up. And so I thought about how if, if you were sort of a, a Martian coming and, and studying us and trying to understand us, you might think, oh, well, these people must experience no grief and sadness because they're not spending a whole lot of time in that lament literature. Uh, But we know that's not true, right? So I thought this week about what a funny situation we find ourselves in, where lament is a part of the Bible that a a preaching series on it strikes us as a little odd, maybe, and we haven't spent a whole lot of time in it, and yet every one of us either experiences deep sadness and grief, or we live closely with multiple people that do. When I thought about that, I thought, what a powerful opportunity this summer to learn from this series and lament about something that we're all experiencing every day. A part of that experience I thought about is that oftentimes I can feel like I'm, I'm without words, that I, I have a dear friend or, or someone that I love that is in pain, and I tell them I will be praying for you, and I sit down to pray for them, and I feel like I don't even know what to pray. I don't see any way the situation can get better. I, I really don't even have words. And, and so that's what the Bible offers us, is it offers us a language, kind of a framework to think about what's going on, and words to, to pray and think about and share with people as we're in that lament state. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 77, and what Psalm 77 gives us language to really think about is what kinds of things we should remember when we lament or when those around us are lamenting. The psalm's 20 verses long, uh, but the psalmist actually only spends about two verses describing the pain that he's feeling. Last week, we got a really clear picture that the, the psalmist was lamenting injustice in the world. This week, we really don't know what he's lamenting specifically at all. He spends about seven verses, seven of those 20, telling us about how he turns to God and what it looks like for him to turn to God in the middle of that lament. But then he spends 11 verses, over half the psalm, describing vividly in detail a deliberate choice that he makes to remember something very specific about God. 
After describing these memories, you'll see the psalm just ends very abruptly. It almost feels like a kind of an awkward way to end the psalm. Now, I, I want to warn you before we get into it. This is not the kind of psalm where we see things get better for the author of the psalmist. We don't see his grief or pain go away. This isn't the kind of psalm that's going to give us a, a method for getting rid of pain or getting rid of grief. It kind of makes me think about uh, myself a few years ago, maybe 10 or 15 now, when for a very short period of my life, I did some running for exercise or leisure. And uh, I trained for the Nashville Half Marathon one time. And um, one of the things I experienced, I don't know if, if some of you all are like superhuman athletes and this doesn't happen for you, but one of the things I experienced is that no matter what kind of shape I got in, within the first mile of the run, I always felt a lot of pain and discomfort. My lungs, would burn, my lungs would burn, my legs would ache. I was usually sore still from the previous training run. And, and, and I learned pretty quickly. Uh, thankfully, I played some sports before, and that helped me uh, learn this pretty quickly, that, that if my goal when I go out running is to try and figure out a way to make that pain not happen, I need to figure out a way that when I run, I don't feel discomfort and pain, that, that I was going to be miserable. The whole, th- the, the whole time. That was just not going to happen. Instead, what I had to do was I had to figure out a way to, to think about that pain, to, to find hope in it even, to think about why I was enduring this pain, what it was for, uh, to, to sort of have, have strategies where I, you know, I set my eyes on a marker ahead of me and I only think about running to that marker. And then once I get there, I set my eyes on something else. I had all of these mechanisms for working through that pain. But if I had found myself every time I was running trying to get rid of the pain, then I was going to be miserable. And we're kind of in the same situation this morning. This psalm in 77 does the same sort of thing. It doesn't claim to do away with pain, but it paints a picture of someone in pain that makes a deliberate choice to remember something specific about God. And in that memory, finds hope. Even though the pain doesn't go away, circumstances don't change. So this morning, I'm just going to try to do three simple things for us. Uh, I'm going to spend some time trying to unpack what it looked like for this person in pain to turn towards God. And then we're going to spend a good bit of time trying to understand what the memory was and why he turned to this specific memory. And then we're going to end uh, where I'm going to try to uh, make an argument for what I think we as Christians can learn from a psalm like this in Lament. So will you stand with me as we honor God's word and read together from Psalm chapter 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, My spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? 
Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You can be seated. Our author this morning opens up the psalm by framing the whole psalm, all 20 verses in the first verse. He tells us that this is a psalm about simultaneously being in such pain and grief that you're crying out, but at the exact same moment that you're turning to God in faith, trusting that he's going to hear your cry. In the first couple of weeks of the series, Matt McCullough and, and Matt Givens have, have referenced um, a helpful framework for thinking about Christian lament that has four steps, where you turn to God, there's a complaint to God, you make a request of God, and, and then you find hope. And in the first nine verses here, we see a really clear picture of what it looks like for this author to turn towards God in faith. I think what we see that's, that's really important here is that a lot of times we can think about things like grief, pain, depression, anguish. We can think about those things as if they're, they're totally inconsistent with things like faith, joy and hope, trust. We treat grief and faith like they're oil and water and they can't mix together. But the author in this psalm tells us that, that that's just not true. What the author says is, I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me. He doesn't tell us anything about his circumstances, but we know what crying aloud means. We know that that's the the universal sign, something really bad is wrong. If you ever hear a child in the backyard or, or a different part of the house that you're not in cry out for you, You don't know anything about why they're crying out, but immediately you know, I need to get there because there's something really bad going on. What we see is that this author's pain and faith are at the same time both deep and real. I think the most dangerous thing about the idea that that faith and pain can't coexist together Um, is that we can find ourselves in a vicious cycle where we're already in grief and pain over the world's circumstances. But if we think that evidence of our faith is that grief and pain going away, we heap on top of it guilt, depression, from what we see as a lack of faith. If I'm in such pain and sadness, I must not have faith, which then continues this terrible cycle. I think what the author gives us this morning is a chance to look closely where he describes in in almost painful detail 
what it looks like for him for faith and pain to both be real at the exact same time. He says, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. See, this is a person whose faith is not failing. This is a person whose faith is leading him to pray day and night. To stay up all night, he tells us. He tells us he stays up all night praying with his hands stretched out. It may have been literally what was happening, but I think also what this image conveys, if you've ever held your hands straight out for any period of time, is that he's letting us know that, that in the pain and weariness that you experience with your hands being held straight out, I am holding fast. In the middle of this pain, I'm not wavering. I am praying to my God. But what we see is that his pursuit of God and his faith, it doesn't take away the pain. We see the author complaining to God about how he feels. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. He's pursuing God day and night. But he's still in grief. He tells us when he meditates, his spirit faints. He even claims that it's God that won't let him find rest and sleep. He says, you hold my eyelids open. He tells us he's so troubled he can't even speak. He's without words. And that just the thought of God makes him groan inwardly. This author's praying day and night. He's crying aloud to God. He's unable to sleep, but he's left both spiritually and physically weary. Now, if we look in verse 5, he takes a moment to tell us that, that I tried to remember better times. Most of the commentaries I read in, in preparing uh, think that this song in the night reference is, is just a way of referencing a day that led me to joy and singing and represents times that were much better than what I'm experiencing right now. But when he goes to these memories and he puts them against what he's experiencing right now, it just leads him to a series of questions, very pointed questions directed straight at God. Look at verses 7 to 9. He asks, Is the Lord going to spurn me forever? Has his steadfast love ceased? Just, just think about the way that question is worded. The word, mean, the word steadfast means it doesn't cease, it doesn't end. And so he's putting a word that means it doesn't end right next to asking, has it ended? As if almost to ask God, you have called your love steadfast, but did you maybe use the wrong word to describe it? Has it in fact gone away? He goes on to ask, Will your promises not come true, God? We know we need your grace, but have you forgotten that we need your grace? Are you so angry at us that you have shut up your compassion? I don't know about you, but, but this is a hard picture to look at very closely. Somebody crying out to God, faithfully turning to him in prayer, and still feeling such grief and pain. 
But I don't think the pain of it is, is all that we have from this. If you're here this morning and you're suffering through pain and grief that just won't seem to go away, especially, I actually think there's something very encouraging in this picture that you can take. I think the psalm is here, and, and we have the psalms, uh, psalmist's vivid description of his pain and faith at the same time. So that if you're in pain and grief, you can read this and know that you are not alone. I think that pain and grief and suffering can sometimes be one of the most isolating, lonely experiences for people to go through. And so even though this account is really, really hard to read, it's really hard to look at closely, I think it's really encouraging actually to see here, if you are in pain and grief, that you are not by yourself, that the God of this Bible is not averse to pain. He doesn't ask his followers to keep their chin up or a stiff upper lip. I've heard from friends um, in, our, in our country that are minorities that, that tell me how difficult it can be to read books or watch movies or television or news or all kinds of media sources and, and to almost never see someone in those stories that looks like them or really in an a, a accurate way represents what their experience is like living in this country. Uh, I've heard how hard that is. But I've also heard people talk about, um, because of that, how encouraging it can be whenever a movie or a book or, or a news story or, or something comes out that represents, has a character in it that represents them. Not just what they look like, but represents their experience that gets it. I think why that's so important is because it's a statement when they see that, that, hey, you belong here. You are a part of this story. You're a part of what's going on. You deserve to be in this. So this morning, if you're suffering through grief, this psalm is telling you that you are a part of this story. You haven't been left behind. You haven't been forgotten. You don't need to clean up anything to be a part of this community and to trust in God. You belong here. So it's hard to look at his pain, especially in the midst of his, in the midst of his faith and praying. And I do think that, that we can be encouraged by seeing that, that our God uh, says that, that that's not inconsistent with faith in him. But in, in the second half, in the last 11 verses, our author tells us more details about, in the midst of this pain, why he is able to say with confidence, my God will hear me when I cry out to him. He never makes an explicit request to God. Um, But in this psalm, we get to see where his hope comes from. And what it comes from is remembering something very specific. The author makes a deliberate choice to remember something other than good times. He tells us that in order to find answers to all of those hard questions that he has laid out, he is going to appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I don't know if you noticed, but that verse there, and back in verse 5 where he said he was remembering old times, actually have a very parallel structure. Uh, What it seems to be uh, leading us to do is to think of them together. Almost as if he's saying, yeah, once I remembered days of old, 
but, but no, that's not what I'm going to remember now. What I'm going to remember is the right hand of the Most High. That image of God's right hand is something that's used all throughout the Bible. And so what the author's saying here is that the answers to all of those hard questions that he was just asking are found in the power and in the sovereignty and in the blessing of the God that he's turning to. Because this is a God that is most high. This is a God that transcends anything that he's experiencing right now. In verses 11 and 12, he tells us that um, he's going to remember God's mighty deeds. And in 13, he goes on to claim that these mighty deeds speak of a God that's holy, a God that is entirely set apart from anything that's going on right here that we experience. I think it's interesting to see that this leads him to another question, but a question that's very different in content and tone than all of those questions that he laid out before. This memory leads him to ask, what God is there like our God? Something about this memory he's focusing on leads him in the midst of grief and pain to praise of this God. He's still crying out, but right now he's crying out truths about God. What God is there like you? He asks what? He says, you make your strength known among us, your people. So I think it's worth asking, what kind of memory for someone like this in pain would lead to this kind of praise? If his memories of good times led him to ask those hard questions of God, what kind of memory leads him to praise God's wondrous works? In verse 15, he tells us that when he appealed to the right hand of the Most High, he remembered a God that used that right hand to redeem his people. I think it's important to notice this author doesn't just draw on any memory of God's power. I also think it's important to remember when we're reading a psalm like this, this is not just a stream of consciousness. This is someone who's deliberately written a worship song intended to communicate something to worshipers. So it's important to ask, well, what exactly was the memory? If you're going to remember something about God's power, you could think about creation. You could think about the flood. You could, you could think about all kinds of memories. So what is it that this author remembers? This author points us to a memory that's deliberately written to remind worshipers of the defining act of God's redemption for his people. And for the worshipers that he would have been writing for, ancient Israelites, he's telling them to remember the Exodus. Not only that, he focuses our gaze on the most climactic point of the Exodus story. So, just to remind you, back in uh, Exodus chapter 14, where we read about this, um, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, had been there for hundreds of years, no hope of escaping or defeating Pharaoh's army. And God brought Moses back to Egypt, and, and through uh, a number of things, a series of plagues and other things, Pharaoh finally decided, you can go, pack up and leave. And he lets the Israelites go free. But as they're walking and leaving, Pharaoh has a, a quick change of heart. And he amasses the strength of his entire army, every horse, every chariot, everything that he has in hot pursuit of the Israelites. 
Now, what God does at this point is at first a little strange. He tells Moses to tell the people to turn back a bit and to make camp right along the sea in the most vulnerable position they could have possibly been in for some kind of military conflict. And so where God's people find themselves in this story where the psalmist points our attention is almost an exact analog to where the psalmist has just told us he is. God's people could look away from Egypt. They could look across the sea. They could see God's promises. They could see his blessing. But then all they had to do was turn around and look the other direction towards Egypt, and they saw Pharaoh's army. Nothing but death and destruction and hopelessness. And they find themselves right against the sea, no way of crossing it on their own, in what seemed to them to be a hopeless situation, right in between God's promises and what seems to be totally contradicting those promises. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 14, the Israelites' response is very similar to what the psalmist tells us he's doing. They cry out to God. In fact, they turn to Moses and they ask him questions like, this is an actual question they ask. They say, Moses, uh, were there not enough graves in Israel? Is that why you brought us out here? So that when we die, we actually have enough graves to bury us in? They see absolutely no hope. The author draws on this memory because just like the Israelites, he sees God's promises, but then he looks at his grief and he cries out to God day and night, are your promises gone forever? With his memory placed on this defining act of God's redemption and the climactic part of that story, he ends the psalm with a vivid telling of what God did for his people. And in this telling, we can see why he has reason to trust that God will hear his cries. In verse 16, he says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. In this telling, he actually takes some artistic liberty to to try and help us grasp what it was like, what that experience was like for the Israelites. And so in, in this, he personifies the water. He gives it some agency as if to make us see that that God's people were crying out and they were hopeless because they didn't think there was any way for them to get across this water to his promises. But it's as if the author's telling us that the water knew better. The water knew who created it. The water knew who spoke it into existence with just a word. And, and the water trembled because it knew that it couldn't hold God's people from its promises. The author goes on again, with some artistic liberty to help us connect with the chaos of the scene. I'm going to read uh, straight from verse 17 through 18. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And then verse 19, the author remembers, but your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So I think what the author is, is taking away from this memory here is, uh, is that God works 
for his people, for the good of his people, but oftentimes in ways that we would never expect and things that we don't understand in the moment. If you're a military strategist, the location of the camp was terrible. It was a terrible choice. It was a death sentence. But in Exodus 14, God tells Moses, yeah, I'm doing this on purpose because whenever I redeem my people, I am going to get glory. Whenever you see how I rescue you, all of Egypt and Pharaoh will know that I am God. So the psalmist, I think, is using this memory to say, I may not see my way out from where I am. I may not see any hope for this situation that's leading me to cry out. But I can remember. I can remember what the right hand of the Most High does when all hope is lost for his people. I remember that he works in ways that bring him glory. I remember that his right hand cares for his children. And I can remember that it's powerful to redeem them even from the most hopeless situations. And then the psalm, like I said, comes to an abrupt stop. He doesn't elaborate on how that makes him feel. He just ends with that memory. In verse 20, he ends by telling us, God, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, which is to say through all the years of wandering in the desert, through all of that pain, through all of that confusion, through what seemed like they were going nowhere, through the people's sin, through their disobedience, you faithfully led them. And you are faithfully leading me. See, it's by remembering God's redemption of his people and then taking the grief that he's feeling right now and and placing that grief within the same grief that those people in that memory were facing, that this author finds hope because he places his grief within God's larger redemptive story and the place that our pain and suffering serves within that story. This is what leads him to be able to say in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, but he will hear me. This week I've been thinking an awful lot about the role that memories play in in all of our experience, how we choose to remember certain things over and over again, and those things get put into kind of stories in our mind that actually shape the way we see what's happening right right here around us, and how powerful that can be. Um, I, I actually was led to think an awful lot about the role that that plays in my relationship with my wife. Um, So every now and then, I can come home from a long day at work and raise up the garage door. And as the garage door slowly raises up, I find a minivan that is a little crooked and maybe parked about two feet too far to the left so that I can't pull my car into the garage. And if I'm honest, then sometimes my gut reaction can be frustration. Or even to think things about the person that drove that car that just aren't true. But in that moment, all I have to do is remember, years ago, with two young kids and a mortgage, when I told Jennifer that I wanted to quit my job and move to a different city and go to graduate school. 
All I have to remember is her unwavering support. When we moved from a comfortable house we owned to a small two-bedroom duplex with no central heat and air, all I have to do is remember that the owners of that duplex didn't clean it when the previous tenants had moved out. And before we moved our furniture in, my wife swept up a mountain of cat hair so tall that it filled an entire trash bag. It's true. I remember that she did all this with a three-year-old and a one-year-old at her ankles. And that memory leads me to ask, what other wife would do these things? Don't look at that car in the garage and be fooled into thinking that that crooked car keeping you from pulling in defines her relationship to you. No. Remember. Remember the years that she has sacrificed for your good. This psalm tells us this morning that the Bible is pointing us to a kind of deliberate remembering in times of lament to do a similar kind of work. When we look to God's promises and we look around us and it leads us to cry out, Have you forgotten us, O God? We have a memory that Psalm 77 gives us to look at that answers that question. While the psalmist got to look at an act that defined God's faithfulness to the ancient Israelites and his redemption, that memory, friends, was just a foreshadow of the memory that we have to look at, which is God's defining act to redeem his people once and for all from sin and death through Jesus. Where the psalmist, the psalmist remembers God's people enslaved to Pharaoh without any hope of escaping. We, friends, we are called to remember God's people slaves to sin without any way of breaking free from death and hell. Where the psalmist remembers God sending Moses to bring his people out of Egypt, we can remember that God sent Jesus to free his people from sin. The psalmist gets to remember God leading his people to be pinned against the sea. Them crying out, why have you brought us here to die? But we, friends, we get to remember that Jesus prayed in anguish to his Father, please let there be some other way. And instead, the Father led him to the cross, and Jesus, seemingly abandoned by his Father, cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Where the psalmist took his grief and situated it in that story of God redeeming his people from Israel, God invites us to situate our grief in the hopelessness of a Savior dead and in a grave. But then, friends, then the psalmist gets to remember God's way was through the sea. We're called to remember that God's way was through the cross and through death. The psalmist remembered that the sea trembled, but we, friends, get to remember that the grave trembled and that just like the sea couldn't keep God's people from his promises, death and the grave could not keep God from redeeming his people from sin. The psalmist finds comfort by God leading his people like a flock through Moses, and we are called to remember that God, by his Spirit, this morning, right now, leads his people through Jesus.
The psalmist found hope by looking to the right hand of the Most High and the salvation that he brought for his people when they were slaves in Egypt. But friends, we get to look to the one that sits at that right hand and once and for all has freed us and given us access to our Father. So friends, you see, this psalm doesn't give us a method for getting rid of pain. It doesn't give us a way to necessarily feel better in the moment. What it does, though, is it tells us to remember our God and his redemption for us. It tells us to remember the details of that story and to take the grief and pain that we're experiencing now and place it into that story right where our Savior painfully died for us. So friends, don't be afraid to cry out to God. Don't be afraid to honestly complain about your grief. Don't be fooled into thinking that grief and pain are inconsistent with faith and trust in this God. But then, find hope that any suffering we might be experiencing right now is not worth comparing to the glory that one day we will share with our Savior Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we are here this morning and we are living in a world that celebrates your victory at the cross and yet still waits for the day when you will once and for all make all things new and bring about your kingdom. And Father, that situation can bring pain. It can leave us in a place to look to those promises, to look to the kingdom that's coming, but then to look at what we're experiencing right now and to ask God, where are you? Father, this morning I pray that your spirit would lead us, would lead us to remember Jesus, would lead us to remember you walking him to the cross, would lead us to remember the pain and suffering of our Savior, and would lead us to join in his suffering and to find hope in the promise that that suffering brings, that you have once and for all defeated sin and death, and finally redeemed your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.